your name correctly for me. My name is Tomáš Lahoda. And you are a painter and a professor in the Czech Republic, correct? Yes, yes. I'm also conservator, art restorer. Fabulous. I have tons of questions about conservation. Okay, but let's go back a step. So one of the first things I always love to know about people is sort of their childhood, their background. How did they even get into being creative and work in the creative industries? Well, I was, of course, drawing as a child. Most of small children do that. I was drawing somehow in during the basic school. And my real interest when I really started somehow to paint was at the secondary school, when I actually entered the secondary school. And because that was under the socialistic regime, Czechoslovakia at that time, we didn't really have any access to the Western art scene here in the country. And my only access was actually possibility to visit the American embassy in Prague. And they had a library there. And in the library, they had some art magazines, Art in America and Art Forum. And I was borrowing these magazines and somehow I forgot to return them <laughs> and they didn't mind somehow. So I actually have them till now. And that was my source or inspiration. And another interesting or funny thing is that I had a friend with whom I shared all my free time after when I came home from the school, from the second, secondary school. And he was working in a bookshop in the center of Prague. And the bookshop was, they had only technical literature, you know, about engineering, housing, gardening, and that kind of stuff. And every year, at the end of the year for Christmas, they made a small exhibition of art books from the West. And when the exhibition was finished, it didn't pay to send the books back. So they just sold them. And we were the first, you know, to be on spot. And at that time, it was 1970. I bought three books that really made an impact on me or influenced me. It was a book about pop art. And it was a monograph about Andy Warhol and a monograph about Roy Lichtenstein. So these three books followed me since then. And actually, I have to say that pop art was one of the main influences on me. Even it was, it was completely, you know, in the situation in the country, it was completely out of <laughs> time, out of, you know, space, out of everything to be interested in this kind of thing. Okay, well, relevant to your work, so I did some research on you and some stuff. One question that popped in my head was, so I've been a practicing artist for a couple decades, and I've been a professor and all kinds of stuff. You have done and are also known for doing multiple different styles of work over the course of your career. My big question is because 
there's been this tradition of like you should pick a style and stick with it and have that be your signature thing but you seem to have literally sort of run the opposite way and it seems to have been to your advantage now maybe i'm wrong on that so like the question is like has the choice to work in multiple styles and multiple techniques and stuff been helpful or detrimental to your career i decided to do that to do works in different styles and different genres. Somewhere, of course, in the very beginning, I was just painting. Each painting, you know, was kind of different. But soon, I decided to paint in series, and each series was had a certain thematic a theme, and also a different style according to the theme. And as I was interested in different subjects. So these series or these themes somehow were covering these different subjects that I was referring to. So it was more or less kind of a conceptual approach. And when I thought it over, then I started to paint the series. So I don't know if I should mention some of the themes or some of the series. You're welcome to. But the question sort of is like, I'm trying to think how to explain this. Like the when I was in school and even as a professor, I was always telling people, my students, you know, find a style, find a thing, because that's how you're going to be known. That's how you're going to sell. That's how you're going to get a reputation to get grants and residencies and all kinds of these kinds of different benefits of a career. So the question is, is sort of, did you notice that that changing mediums and changing styles was beneficial or detrimental to the growth of your career? I think it was not always beneficial. <laughs> I think people didn't really get it or understood why I'm changing so much and that it was exactly the point that they couldn't you know, determine that this is really his style or his way of doing things. Suddenly he comes with something completely different. And so we have like 10 different artists here. And who is he, you know, or who are they? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's sort of what I was looking for. Yes. Now, I mean, because like as an American, I, of course, think of the capitalistic things that, you know, an art gallery. Have you been represented by galleries and are you currently represented? I've been represented by two galleries in Denmark because I lived in Denmark for a long time. So I've been represented by three galleries, actually, there. But now, after coming back to Prague, moving to here, I don't have any representation here. Well, because, I mean, I've worked in art galleries, and we had you know artists that would be working in a style, and we had people collecting their, that style, and then suddenly they changed, and all the collectors were like, I don't want any of that anymore. And so it, you know, it's that kind of an issue that I, I wonder about, because... I change styles pretty, you know, every maybe seven or eight years, I sort of flux into something new, but no, nowhere near as dramatic as you. <laughs> Yours are very different. Yes. I've made a show at the National Gallery in Prague, and that was actually conceived as an art fair. I think there were 12 different series and they each were designed like an art fair booth, you know, gallery booth with, with design chairs and tables, and then equipped with this with a certain series. So it really looked like exhibiting 
12 different artists in a small art fair. But it was all you? Yes. Okay. Nice. I also noticed that the, you, you use the word cycle to describe your work. I love that word. That is such a better word than series to me. Mm-hmm. Where, how did you come up with that, or did you take it from somebody? I don't know. I just you think there is a big difference between series and cycle? Cycle to me sounds perpetual and, and ongoing and sort of sort of cyclical, like it's got the same sort of cyclic sound in it, uh, versus series, which to me has a terminating time. Like a series begins and ends at a time and could, you know, doesn't necessarily relate to something else. Oh, okay. Well, because with some of these cycles, <laughs> I pick them up, you know, again and again sometime. Not all of them, but some I've made them. I painted a number of paintings from one cycle. And then there were a couple of years, sometime even 10 years, where I didn't follow but then you know suddenly or not suddenly I, I just picked it up and painted some more paintings within that cycle in the same style in the same just kind of made up new versions so to say well that's an interesting point do you revisit paintings ever like so let's say you finish a piece you exhibit it whatever it doesn't sell and it comes back to you do you rework it or is it still do you leave it as from what the way it was when you first exhibited i leave it i don't rework it it was very seldom that i reworked something okay it was more that i was not satisfied with it or i just took it and you know worked on it and changed it maybe but not necessarily after it has been exhibited now, you have a book that came out of your work about two years ago, 2019, if I'm correct. Yes. I've noticed that in Europe, that having a book of your art is much more prestigious and sort of more important than I've seen in other countries. So like, how, what was the process of getting a book published? Did you propose it? Was it brought to you, the idea brought to you? How did that come about? It was kind of a... Because I knew, and I know the publisher, we know each other for a long time, and we have been co-working on my catalogs that he printed, or he just co-worked on them with me, and they were printed for some other occasions. But somehow we talked about it for some time and agreed that now it would be time to, to print a book. It's just that easy. You're just like, yeah, friend, I'm just going to make a book. Yeah, but of course, it's his business. So he's selling those books. So he must be agreed. And he was because he has his, his money in it. So he kind of just didn't, you know, he wouldn't just take everything to be printed. So, but it was kind of a mutual agreement that he agreed and I, me too. And it was kind of time I was. 64, 65, so it was also, you know, this kind of uh, age. It's now or never. <laughs> yeah, well, it's now or at posthumously that it'll be published, yeah. <laughs> I know, I'm starting to worry about those kinds of things as I'm getting older. So, okay, how do you, 
I'm sorry if this is a bit blunt, but like, how do you make a living? So like, you don't have a current gallery representation. I know you teach, you do some conservation work. Do you sell your artwork on a regular basis? Or do you get, get commi commissions or anything like this? Like any other income stream from your art? Mm, not really art commissions. Sometimes I get commissions to make copies, <laughs> which is maybe more related to my restoration work or reconstructions of... Right now I'm doing two large paintings, which are which is a commission, and they are reconstructions of wall paintings from one castle where the wall paintings are damaged. And there are some area where big parts of the paintings are missing. And they asked me to make a possible reconstruction so that I should paint in the missing scenes. <laughs> Of course, in the style, you know, it's it's a Renaissance wall paintings from an old castle. And they want to have them next to the originals just to show the audience how they may have, may have looked like. So this is kind of a combination of, yeah, somewhere between painting commission and restoration commission because you have to know, you know, I had to find some similar motifs and figure out, you know, they had to be from the same period and so on. Okay, so I want to know lots about conservation. I'm, I'm, my background is photography, so I have a lot of like archival questions about you know different mediums and things like this. So, like wh when you're doing a conservational work on, let's so let's take this one you're talking about right now. So large scale oil paintings, Renaissance. Do you actually go back and try and get sort of paint paints and materials of the time? So like how sort of pure and traditionalist of a conservation do you do or do you use contemporary materials but just done in the style of yes you use contemporary materials and it's also one of the how would you say it's required so to say because there should be recognizable difference in you know between the original and what's new the addition and even if you maybe couldn't see it visually, so you should be able to detect it by other means. So actually, it's better not to use the original pigments and binding media so that you really come to make kind of a falsification <laughs> of the original. So we just use, you know, modern materials from nowadays and just trying to visually fit them in have you ever been approached to do like a like a more of a forgery versus a copy well i was not a forgery but i had a client who came with a painting of josephine baker and she was smiling you know with nice white teeth and she in one hand she had a toothpaste and it there was written toothpaste libouche on it which is kind of a strange thing you know he wanted me to overpaint this toothpaste and to paint a glass of wine or something else that would somehow match or fit more to josephine baker and apparently 
it was an advertisement painting for the toothpaste, you know, and she was smiling there with the white teeth, you know, but he wanted to have a portrait of Josephine Baker and uh, the toothpaste didn't really fit <laughs> to, to his image. So that was kind of strange, but not really. I didn't have any forgery cases, no. Copies, copies, yes, that were as close as possible, but there were copies. Okay. When it comes to conservation, so like you were doing conservation work and you're a practicing artist yourself. So like, does that affect you? So like, are you trying intentionally to use quote unquote sort of archival materials and things that will sort of you know, last a long time? So like, do those two speak to each other? No. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> okay. I'm usually asked about this if I use old techniques, for example, old master's techniques, because I have studied them and I know them, and I don't. And I don't even, when I do my own painting, you know, I don't care if if those colors that I'm just using, if they last or not, because I wouldn't do anything in that case. I would just wait to buy the most, you know, the best colors, the best materials, and, and you know, I don't have them all the time in my studio. So I can clearly separate these two things. Of course, it's good to know the techniques and I may sometimes use something of it, but not deliberately, you know, that I'm using a Baroque technique to paint a modern painting, you know. If it's necessary, I use underpaintings, which comes from that period maybe, but otherwise I can clearly keep it separate. All right. Do you only do conservation on paintings? Yes, mostly. I'm trained in mural conservation of murals, paintings, and wooden polychrome sculptures. But paintings is actually what I have focused most on. And majority of the people that come for conservation, because I mean, I think about it, especially like even with my own little family art collection that we have about how much conservation will do over the years. Do you get families coming with like family heirlooms or do you get governments coming trying to do like their their government collections like what are the kinds of people that are utilizing conservationists both or all three i mean i get private clients i get private galleries and i get museums coming to asking me restore the works but and then but do they garner, do they request different results? Because like I could imagine a museum would say, make it as close to original as possible, whereas like a family might be like, just make it good enough. Most of the time they don't. They just want to have it restored and they somehow let me judge what is necessary to do. Sometimes they, of course, they may say that they would like to have it I don't know, shiny, you know, like a private person. I would like to have it shiny and everything completely retouched. And, and we can discuss it and I can tell them if my opinion is different, I can tell them and I can argue why I think so. But usually we come to an agreement. Of course, there is a difference when you restore for a museum or for a church. Because church, it's another client. So you may say that the same artwork coming from a museum would be restored in a different way than the work if it came from the church, because we are judging, you know, the context is different. 
so in the church usually they don't want to have the artworks to just partially you know they want to have them repaired fully because the whole in the church should somehow look not, not as if it's new but certain losses on an artwork are acceptable in the museum but not in the church my father actually is both a priest and a uh, he he does Russian Byzantine icons, so uh, the the whole church stuff is fascinating to me. So the churches will often come with like a lot of stuff. Like they'll just come and say, "Hey, re, you know, refinish the whole church," or is it always just like one piece got damaged and so they just need it repaired, kind of thing? Yeah, usually it's it's a painting or a sculpture or a couple of paintings. You know, often they are very, very damaged. They have been lying somewhere under the roof for centuries, rolled up, you know. And Or if it's a sculpture, for example, a polychrome sculpture, and there are parts of the polychrome is missing. So in the church, they would like to have it, you know, refilled and retouched, while in the museum they may leave it like that, you know, just the torso. When you say polychrome, could you explain that a little bit more for me? A polychrome, that's the paint. That's the paint on the wooden sculptures or even on stone sculptures. So if they are painted, the word for it is polychrome. Okay. I've just never heard that particular vernacular before, but I understand what you're saying. A, a wooden painted sculpture. Polychrome. Poly, with polychrome paint. Yes. Okay. How did you even get into conservation? Well, I studied at the Academy of Fine Arts in Prague. And before I joined, I went in. It was actually my father's fault because I was painting you know, at the secondary school and I was painting pop art in my cellar. And my father took me for holidays against my, you know, I didn't want to go there. <laughs> and we went to Slovakia walking in the mountains and you know it was like okay son what would you like to do and i said well maybe art academy and painting and he said yes fine fine but you will have to quit all this rubbish pop art that you are doing in the cellar and i may find you a teacher because he knew some artists and he said i could find you a teacher and you would have to go to him and he would teach you how to draw and, and paint in a proper way. And another thing is that I would recommend you to go for a restoration, not for the painting. And I said, oh, okay, why? And he said, well, because if you go to the restoration department, you will be a restorer. You could always live from that. And you can paint if you want anyway. And if you can you know, survive on painting, you can just do it. But if you went to the painting school, you would just be able to paint. And if you don't survive, what will you do? So that was a clever <laughs> and a good, actually a good advice, because at that time, again, it was under the communist regime and all the painting schools were terrible at the academy. So actually, I couldn't imagine myself going there. You know, they were all uh, kind of like small copies of the professors, all the students doing the stuff that was kind of, you know, approved by the state. So it was a very good advice I found later on by my father. 
It's excellent advice. Yeah. I mean, I find that in Europe, it's the sort of atelier sort of master apprentice relationship and the, the, the perpetuation of that is still very uh, ingrained in the educational systems. They, they're, I mean, in America, we don't do that as anywhere near as much. I mean, it does happen a little bit, but here it's incredibly important. Like I went to go for a teaching job and the, on the application form. So this wasn't like a conversation, but like in the form, it said, what school did you study at and who, whose studio did you study in? And I'm like, I'm like, I'm American. We, we, <laughs> we don't do that. But it's very important here. I mean, wh why is that continuing? Uh, I, I'm sort of asking because I, I want to understand the benefits of that sort of system. Well, I don't think there is any <laughs> from my point of view, <laughs> but they still stick to it. It's strange because, I don't know, it's a tradition, I guess, and they still have this belief that this personal impact, which of course may be there, but you could still be open to other points of views and to other impacts. When I was teaching in Denmark at the academy, and of course I had my own studio too, I was the leader of the painting atelier, but I was opened, you know, my students, they could work in any media, they could do videos if they wanted. They should just ask somebody else for more information, you know, because I did not know so much about video. So it was much more open there. And we were also exchanging students and the teachers or the professors, you know. Uh, but here, it's still somehow, I think it's opening up now too with the young generations. But until very recently, it was still this one man show. <laughs> the leader has. The right. Well, I've even been to gallery exhibitions and even on like the, I don't even know what it would be, like the price list or the, 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 the bio thing about it, it'll say so-and-so studied at this school under this person. And so like they'll even sort of advertise that this person had studied under a particular person. And when I, when I first got here, I was like, what do I care? I don't, I, I just found this artist and who, what do I care about who they studied with as far as like an atelier mastering i don't it was it's very odd but of course i wasn't raised in it so it's also because you know some of the teachers they have a certain i mean they are recognized as being good or bad so if you are his or her pupil then you are bad or good according to how they are perceived in the public or in the art world well, it's a little bit of cult of personality for sure. Yeah, yeah. And it's a little, but it's a little bit like in the old days, you know, Renaissance, like I totally understand that that system makes perfect sense because there were no proper sort of schools and the way you learned was to be an apprentice. And they seem to, you know, and they just seem to have taken that structure and simply put it into academic <laughs> instead of coming up with their own idea of how to do it. But I'm not I'm not saying it's bad. There's some magnificent artists coming out of these schools. So, you know, not saying that that's wrong. I was teaching in Brno at the academy there. And it was really, you know, I had fights with another professor just because I could ask his students some questions that he thought was, this is just conceptual rubbish. He's just painting. So leave him, you know. <laughs> and that was terrible. 
Yeah, I tried to teach in not just Prague, but in the Czech Republic. And it's very interesting how they, it's a very different academic nature is very different. This whole idea of the, like you mentioned before we were recording, like five-year contracts um, and this kind of stuff, but also the whole format of the academic structure. I don't even know how better to explain it. It's just not what I grew up with, and it doesn't make it bad. So I just want to make it clear for anybody who's listening, I am not bad-mouthing education in the Czech Republic. What did you teach? I'm not going to say... <laughs> private schools and they were shit. Uh, they were the one of the schools. They um, at the end of my first semester, they turned to me. and said, uh, "Matt, we're not going to renew you for next semester because the students weren't happy with your class." And I was just like, well, "Since when was student happiness the point of an education?" I was miserable as a student. So <laughs> if that was true, none of my teachers would have still been there. So I, I'm a bit more of a, a traditional academic in that I believe that the benefit of education is the learning from the education, not the enjoyment of the learning. That's the problem with the private schools that the students, they have much bigger power and voice because they pay for it. So they can, you know, I was teaching at a private school in Prague, architecture school. And it was similar, you know, the students were just, if they were not satisfied, they can just make a big pressure and they would usually dismiss the person teaching because the students just, that's, you know, the students, that's our, and their payments, that's what we are living from. Well, I mean, in the private industry, private school industry, the students are the customers. And if the customers aren't happy, then they're not going to return to that product basically so like i mean from a fundamental nature i understand it but it's it, it's like it's like the inmates running the asylum kind of thing like it's not going it's not going to elevate the status and the quality of the education to make them a better education so that they could theoretically then get better students then theoretically pay, charge higher prices if they're dumbing down their education to the level of what makes students happy Oh, I'm so happy I didn't say the school's name. <laughs> All right, back to conservation. I'm, I'm, I love conservation. I watch all the, you know, the BBC shows with conservation in them, and I've, I've got a number of friends who do conservation work. Um, so, like, how long does a, a, a an average conservation take for you? You mean working on on an object? Yeah. It's very different because you have so many different cases and the, you know, the damages are so different. So right now I have a painting, a portrait, a Baroque portrait, and it's completely overpainted. So there is completely different person, you know, that you see from the one that is beneath the overpainting. So you have to remove all the overpaintings and it, that's, Besides other damages, there are holes in the canvas and old repairs and so on. So this may take like two, three months full time. Okay, wait, I've got another question based on what you just said. What's the most common thing that creates damage? Like, because I'm thinking it could be weather, sun, 
kids running around with scissors. I mean, it's like, what's the most common form of damage that you see that you need to repair? The weather conditions are not really that often because the weather condition doesn't really, not really serious damages occur because of the climate. But, you know, you can have a painting where somebody bumped into it and made a hole. <laughs> you had a visit and <laughs> and the kid just, you know, ran into it and made a hole in it. Or often I get quite a lot of paintings from private people that are dirty and the varnish is so dark and yellowed so that you can't nearly see the original painting. So this is just, you know, removing the varnish, which is not nothing special. It doesn't take much time. But the, the difference is big. Well, I've always wondered this. Okay, so I've seen a lot of these restorations go on. Why is it that old varnish yellows, I guess, period? That's because of the sun, because of sunlight. The varnish itself yellows with time because of sunlight. That's simply... Chemical reaction. Yeah, yeah. It's inbuilt in the properties of the varnish. So the longer period that goes, the, the more yellow it can get. And the thicker it is, the more yellow it can get and so on. So for all practical purposes, basically what you're saying is like every painting that has varnish on it, basically at some point in its life will need to be re-varnished. Yeah, more or less. Again, depending on how thin or how thick the varnish is and what kind of varnish it is, because you have different varnishes and they have a different yellowing potential. You know, So if you use a varnish that gets yellow very little, then of course the time be longer before you would have to re-varnish it or remove it and then re-varnish it. And would the thickness of the varnish also have an effect on that as well? Yes. The thicker, the worse. I mean, the thicker varnish, the more yellow it can get. Right. But would it take longer to turn yellow because it's thicker? No, it would actually be quicker because of the thickness. If it's thin, it may not be yellow that quick as a thick one. Interesting. Okay. Right. Have you had any sort of discoveries, you know, sort of like in your time of doing these these restorations and conservations, have you discovered like taking, removing old paintings and you find something else underneath it or found something that the owners didn't even know existed like on the back or in, tucked in the frame or anything like that? Yes, uh, that happens from time to time. I have found a lot of signatures on paintings that were unknown, you know, so that was nice because suddenly you have a painting by a certain person or dates, dating. That's the most usual findings. Sometimes you find inscriptions. Sometimes you find, you know, you have a landscape painting and underneath is a portrait. <laughs> that's, that's, that's big. Yeah. Then, of course, you have to find out why is it so? Is it by the same author or not? And... What should you do? If should you leave, you know, stick to the landscape, or should you remove it and show the the portrait? So that's a difficult decision taking. But you have to take a lot of things into consideration in that case. 
sometimes there are things like how do you call it uh, in English? You know, you have portraits, and then you have next to the figure you have his order painted or oh, the title or something like that. Yes, but the family crest or shield sign. Yes, 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 shield, shield. Yes, and very often these shields they were added later to the paintings, and sometimes. You know, it was added wrongly. <laughs> it was not the correct shield at all. And sometimes it was correct, but it was just added, you know, 100 years later or 150 years later because it was a family gallery and the family wanted to have it there somehow to for the future to show that this person is from this family. So that's also a questionable thing, you know, if you should leave it while it may still be right, but on the other hand, it's later edition, so it breaks the composition and, you know, so and so. So it's interesting, then you have to consider that it may have a historical value, and that's why you may leave it. It is not original, of course, but it has a certain value that you have to consider. Sometime, in this case, for example, they didn't remove this shield, but they overpainted it so that it is still there. You know, in the future, if you wanted to show it, you can still remove the restorer's overpainting and you can see it if you would prefer the historical value of the not original shield. When I think about conservationists, and I apologize if you take offense to this, but like I think there are sort of like two camps of conservationists. There's the pure traditionalists that like just do everything by hand and very slowly, you know, the, the, the romanticized like movie version of like a conservationist sitting there with a magnifying glass, like touching up little tiny things. And then there's the other side that are, use lots of technology, like these, you know, the x-rays and the infrareds and, the, and, you know, taking pictures and scans and things like this. Is it that sort of, is it like split like that? Or do you all just use all these different t techniques and tools? We all use these techniques, both of them. The difference, I think, rather when you speak about the traditionalists and the rest or some others, maybe in the way how they approach, you know, to restoration and how they do it, not using the X-ray or infrared and so on, but how far they go in retouching, for example, how much they retouch, in which way, what they remove, what they don't remove, and so on, while they still may use the same equipment, you know. And they would still have to work painstakingly, you know, with a small brush and with a magnifying glass because you have no technical device to, you know, to do that. You have to do it by a hand, certain things. As I said, I've like watched these like x-rays and UV lights and like all these really interesting technologies that are seeing some magnificent things in artwork that we sort of didn't know about in the past. What do you use most frequently when it comes to those kinds of technologies? Mostly UV light, ultraviolet light, and then infrared and X-ray if needed. But, you know, you 
somehow because you have experience. So you would judge when would it be necessary to use X-ray or other devices because to find out more. In most cases, you can just see it. You know, there's no problem or question about. So only in certain cases, you would decide to use these devices to help you to somehow analyze the object thoroughly. But normally, like with this overpainted painting that I have right now, use X-ray to find out if there is something underneath. But you can see it with your eye, simply that it is. And there are some other damages, like you can see that there was a missing part of paint layer and that the paint that you see now is in these areas is covering just the canvas, which is a clear sign of that it's an overpainting, you know, because normally you can't see the canvas under the paint layer. They overpainted the original painting also with the damages where the paint was missing and they just covered the canvas. So you can see that so you don't have to check it out with an x-ray and then you make a small sondage yeah a small you try to remove a little bit of the top layer and then you see that underneath there is another layer with a different color and you may make it you know on a different places on a painting and thus you can have kind of a summarized image of what's going on underneath one thing I often wonder about when using these, like the UV and the x-rays and whatever other techniques people are using these days for this stuff, do any of those damage paintings? Um, no, they don't. Okay, that was easy. <laughs> well, because, you know, they say uh, sunlight damages paintings and UV light is the same as what uh, the effects of sunlight. So that's why I'm sort of wondering. And then, of course x-rays they say like when you, you humans shouldn't get too many x-rays because it hurts us kind of thing so i'm wondering if it in any way has an effect on painting yes yeah but we call them non-destructive ways of analyzing paintings and then we have destructive ways of analyzing paintings so for example if you want to know you know the layers of the paint how many layers are there and what kind of colors so you usually take a small, tiny piece of the paint layer. It's like half a millimeter, square millimeter that you have to remove from some part of the painting. And that's already a small destructive attempt, yeah? Because you are removing already something. You are destroying it a little, little, little bit. <laughs> and then you use this sample, and under the microscope you can see how many layers are there, how thick they are, what kind of pigments they consist of, and so on and so on. And thus, you can also see if they are overpaintings or not in a certain way. So that's one of the... But all these X-rays and UV light, they are actually non-destructive. Okay, do you own all of those technologies yourself, or do you, like, share them with others, or, like, go to the hospital to get x-rays of things done? Like, how is how is it even done? Because I can't imagine, like, going to an x-ray company and being like, hi, I'd like to buy an x-ray machine. Like, that seems a bit expensive and outrageous. No, I don't have it, and other restorers don't have them. So if you need this, you know, there are certain labs that can do it. So you just pay for, you know, you have to bring the work there and they can do it for you. 
you pay for it. It's like a service. So there are maybe two, three, four restorers that they have it, and they can also make it for you as a service. And then there are some laboratories or conservation workshops in the state institutions that also may offer this kind of service. Now, when it comes to your conservation work, are all of your clients like local, regional? Because what I'm the reason why I'm asking is this is because I'm picturing in my head that a conservationist often will be sort of an expert in, let's say, sort of a region's type of work, style of work, etc. So, like for instance, you probably don't get conservation work of like Japanese work kind of thing. So, like. Is it sort of regional like that? So you being in Europe, you primarily do conservation work on European art objects? No. I mean, concerning painting, which I do most, I do everything. I do old paintings, Baroque, 19th century, modern. It could be from any region. Of course, there may be things that, you know, if it's a Japanese work on paper, I don't take that because I'm not an expert in paper conservation. And if the, it's a painting, modern painting with a mixed media where paper may be involved, then I somehow have to figure out if I'm able to do that or not. So I may say yes, and then I may speak to a paper conservator, you know, just to get the right solution. Otherwise, again, I wouldn't take it. But modern works of art, they are the most difficult to restore and to take care of. Really? Why? Well, because there is no, you know, in the past, all the techniques, they were traditional techniques. They were, you know, given to generations after, and they were the same. They had a certain structure. The materials were well-known. And now you can use everything, and there's no method in it. There's no nothing. You know, you can use whatever you like, or people do, artists do, and that's the problem because it's often a mixture of things that doesn't work together, doesn't stick together. <laughs> you know, they work differently under the same condition. Certain materials deteriorate. Certain do not and so on. So that is a very big problem. I'm actually teaching this theoretical subject about problems of in restoration of modern art at the faculty where I'm teaching. Okay, because as a practicing artist myself, like, so I go to a paint store, an art supply store, and I'll look around, I'm like, there's a dozen different companies, and they, of course, change their formulations quite often. And there are so many variations within each, even each of those, because there's like student grades, semi-consumer grade and professional grade, all these different things. I wonder, like, as a practicing artist, what can I do to sort of make it easier on the conservators? Should I like put into the like certificates of authenticity or in the, the purchase thing, like any of the materials, like make a list of the brands that I use to make conservation easier in the future like is this something we should even be concerning ourselves with well regarding paints you should of course buy the best ones and usually they are the most expensive ones <laughs> so if you follow this then it's probably the best way for us conservators later on 
but you can never stick to it always. And you know, if you don't use only paint, if you use other things, mixed media, then it's again, you know, for example, Tom Wesselman, the American pop artist, he made paintings where he used some photographs or it was cut out from magazines and it was glued into it. You know, this seems very simple, not really a big problem, but, you know, they started to yellow because it was a cheap magazine print. And after a short time, these photo images started to deteriorate while the paint was still fine and looked very fresh. So the problem is that, you know, you have two different materials which behave very differently. And, for example, he was asked whether he would agree on exchange, you know, when they bleach, when they lose color, if the restorers could take them, you know, remove them and put the same image, maybe re-photograph it and print it in a better quality and then put it there instead of the, the old one. And he said yes, because for him, it was important that the whole painting looked new and have a fresh impression. Some other would say no. You know, Robert Motherwell, I think, he also he made collages and he made cutouts from colored paper. And this paper, some of the pieces, they changed color completely in time. So you have actually a completely different composition, you know, color composition. And he didn't mind. He said, it's okay. You shouldn't change it. You shouldn't remove it and put blue paper there while now it's yellow. It was okay for him. Well, I mean, it's an interesting issue, the whole like uh, degradation of a work of art over time, because I've gone to many museums where I, I like in art history books, I got to know a piece and then I go see it in reality and like edges are curled, things are faded, things have yellowed and it doesn't look anywhere near sort of polished and beautiful as it like it did in the, you know, the famous photo of whatever it was kind of thing. And so I wonder like, is that something that can be, I don't know, dealt with or like, should there be a consensus on that? Or do we just like let it be and each artist make their own decision? Yes. And each owner makes his own decision also. Because, for example, there was a case with Piero Manzoni and his acromes, you know, these white painted paintings, and he wanted them to be clean, you know, and bright white. And, of course, in time, they get dusted and they get slightly yellowed. And there were cases that in a museum in Holland, they had these Manzonis and they asked one of his Comrades, also an artist, who used to overpaint Manzoni's painting while Manzoni was living. And it was okay. Yeah? It was a practice because they didn't want the paintings to seem old. So they asked this painter to overpaint it for them. And he did it because Manzoni would agree on that. And when they did it uh, several times, so the paint was so thick that it started to cover all the small nuances on the surface so that Manzoni actually disappeared, you know, and they started to have a different artwork. So suddenly they stopped because they realized, oh, maybe we should not do that. And then they 
they talked to a, a private person who owned similar Manzoni painting, and he said, no, I want to have it a little bit yellow and dusty because I prefer the authenticity of the author's making and touch. And I don't care about that. Actually, he would have liked it to look like new. So they are very different approaches, you know, and what's better? <laughs> or you should not always listen to the artist as a restorer, what he says about his or her work. That's another thing, you know, because many examples that an artist would, after 20 years, he would say something completely different about his own work than he would have said, you know, when he has made the work. Indeed. What what about crackling? You know, because there's the you know, the famous thing of like the old paintings crackling. Like, is that something like, I love the crackling, but it, I can understand like, depending on the the quantity of crackling, you know, sometimes it can be detrimental to the appreciation of the work. But like, is that something that can and or should be in some way repaired or conserved? Usually we don't. We only repair the cracking as far as, you know, the cracking is lifting up also. So we just flatten it, flatten the paint layer, but the cracks are still there, visible. You know, the net of the cracks is still there. And usually we leave the cracks. Then there may be cases where the cracks are really very open so that the lines are really visible and and maybe something underneath is showing up, maybe the white background or something, then we may consider to slightly retouch it so that it does not appear that much. So it is something that is considered to be, you know, they happen with time, the cracking, and then you have another type of cracks, which is due to the technique that the artist used. If you used a bad technique, for example, if you have a layer, a paint layer that is not dry and you use another paint layer on top of it, and this layer dries more quickly than the layer underneath, then cracks can appear because of this. So that's another type. And this also, you, you really don't do anything with simply a bad technique. And uh, that's hard to do something with. And usually we, we don't retouch it or we just leave it as a sign of that's how he did it. Okay. One other thing I want to know about, about conservationists, are you also, the, do you do research and all this, like go through libraries and try and find out who did something and when and all that? Like, is that a part of it or is it just about the object itself? Yes, it is. Because many times the clients, you know, brings you a painting and they want to know who could it be, who may be the author, or at least from which period of time, if it's not signed. And in that case, if you say yes, you will try to find something out, then you have to go to archives and to compare the canvas, what type of canvas is it, how is it underpainted, with what, and so on and so on, what kind of colors used, the style, and so on, because you can have painting that may be you know from 19th century and actually it is from 17th century or vice versa 
because in the 19th century they tried to paint somehow like in the past. Or once I had a case, it was bought in auction, and it was a Baroque small painting. And when I somehow tried to figure out a little bit more about it, so it was actually a print, you know, painted with varnish, with brown varnish to cover and to make it old. And it was simply a cheap print <laughs> that was sold in an auction for a lot of money. That's unfortunate. Yes. Have you, well, as I was going to say, so like, have you had any surprising things like that where you, they think something's valuable, but when you go in to restore it, you find out the opposite or vice versa, where somebody comes in thinking it's not very valuable and you find out that it's been, it is, is more valuable? Yes. Also, I had cases where, you know, it was an unsigned small landscape and then there were some overpaintings and so on, and I found the signature of a quite famous artist, I mean locally. So suddenly the painting was 100 times more valuable than before. Nice. All right. When I Let's wrap this up. The I generally have these two questions. I'm not sure if you're going to want or be able to answer the first question, but I'll ask it anyways. I generally ask my guests to, to offer up three contemporary artists that you think that you're sort of looking at or watching that you think are somehow noteworthy. Well, there's quite many, but uh, one of my favorite is Albert Erlen, a German artist. I don't know if you know the name. Do not off the top of my head, but I'm, I'm good with images. <laughs> yeah, that would be one of them. What kind of work does he make? Uh, he's a painter. Uh, recently, he is printing, you know, he's just drawing lines on a computer and using these very cheap paint program facilities. And he's just, you know, using them in an abstract way. And then he prints these images in a very large scale. And then he even adds some painting on it himself, you know, adding hand-painted but he has a very different styles in a way also. He was one of the Neue Wilde in Germany, the group of artists. But I think he's one of the most famous of them all. Then right now I'm thinking about, as I was living in, in Denmark for 23 years, a very good Danish artist called Tal R. He's living in Germany, I think, in Berlin in Denmark also, also painting, but using very different, somehow using pastel, using oil, acrylics, using dry pigment with glue. So it's always very sensitive to the quality of the paint. And the third one, in a way, it's also strange maybe <laughs> that I was already from the beginning of my involvement with art, I was not very keen of Czech artists, or I was not really, <laughs> I didn't look up to any. I like some of them, but as I was so much influenced by pop art in the beginning, I was much more interested in American art scene and uh, as a whole art scene in the West than in the local art scene. So who should be the third one, if I should name? Uh, just now I 
come to think about Christoph Kintera, if you know. I do not. He's a Czech artist, quite somehow really well-known in the country, also internationally. But he's not a painter, really. He also he makes large installations using a lot of computer rubbish. I mean, computers that are thrown away. So he would just take the inside and make strange cities out of it and strange creations. And he's making things also that are moving. You know, he's made a little boy dressed in, in normal dresses and he's standing up against the wall and banking with the head <laughs> against the, the wall. So he has a little engine inside, so a little motor. Uh, he's making funny things and also very kind of a very broad area of different artifacts that he's making. Totally random question that just sort of popped in my head was, so you you said that early on in your you were influenced by American pop art. Did you ever have any amount of success in America being directly influenced from that? No, not really. I I had only I exhibited two times in America, once in New York in a gallery, but it was a Danish gallery in New York. So they were exhibiting, you know, the Danish galleries were exhibiting their artists in New York. And then after this exhibition, somebody somebody have seen it and they invited me to exhibit the same exhibition at Pennsylvania State University. They have a gallery there in the university, so the, the, the show was just moved there. Well, the, the reason why I ask is because over my lifetime, I've moved a lot. So like I've, I've moved, I think, 19 times since I left my childhood home. And, and I find that a lot of times people, artists, think that their best market is where they live. But I find that a lot of times it's not where you live, that it's some other place. So I'm sort of just wondering if there's some relationship between who you were inspired by and who your sort of best market of people interested in your work is. Well, not for me. I didn't really have any anything else in the States but these two exhibitions. And there were a couple of paintings that were sold, but somehow that's all. So Maybe it's my gallery's fault more than <laughs> they're mine. <laughs> you know, they didn't do more for me over there. It is possible, yes. Yeah. But my biggest somehow market was in Denmark because I had three galleries there. And uh, actually, it's a bit difficult coming back here after so many years, you know, being nearly unknown here locally because I was away. So it's difficult to build up a career again somehow from as if from the beginning. I know the feeling. I mean, I went from being raised in the United States to the United Arab Emirates for six years. And then I now am in Europe. And when I got into Europe, I was like, hey, you know, I'm 40 something years old. I'm like, I've already got this great CV and I've done all this stuff. And I'm like, you all, you know, like, hey, here, I'm, I'm already something and they were all like no i think you need to like exhibit at a coffee shop or a bar and i'm like i think i'm a little past coffee shop and bar in my career at this point yeah i found it personally a little insulting but yeah it it is a thing that like 
visiting places, like even going long term. So like going somewhere for a year for a residency or something like that's all fine and good. Great experiences, all that. But but moving like when you as an artist, when you move, unless you're already blue chip and you already internationally known, you literally have to start over from scratch. Even just, I mean, Danish to here, you're only talking, you know, not even one. You're still in the same continent, more or less. And it's, it's, it's a tough thing. Like, like for instance, my wife is a, an accountant. Now, when she decides to get a new job at a new accountant firm, they'll just go, oh, you have credentials and qualities. You're a good accountant. Great. We'll hire you. And so like, everything's good. But as artists, we have to like continually re sort of prove ourselves as being quality anytime we make a dramatic change. And it's exhausting. And also... I think that in Denmark and here too, in, in Czech Republic, I think the the galleries are more interested in local artists more than, you know, if it's from outside, that's not really, or they have to have a certain name already, or it's just a smaller percentage that it's that comes in. And in Denmark too, you know, the local, the Danish artist would be more interesting than someone from Czech Republic, even if... The work may be somehow qualitatively on the same level. So just because he's Danish, it's somewhat uh, more interesting for the local public. It is very interesting because like when I was in the United States, I didn't think of it. But like in the U.S., I would probably have gone to a gallery and bought a U.S. artist. But of course, the U.S. is so massive, like that's easy to do there. But I find that in Europe, a lot of people, like when they go to a gallery, they will often buy of that region work. They, they, I don't see a lot of galleries throughout Europe. So this is not just Czech Republic. Like, so in the Czech Republic, the Czech, the galleries will carry more or less Czech or Slovak or Czech or sort of one country away, you know, kind of touching borders, but that's about it. Uh, and it, it's in some ways, I think it's great because they're supporting local artists, that fabulous. But on the other side, they're not really pushing the art buying market to be something a bit more elevated, more international, all this kind of stuff. So like, it's a double-edged sword. Like, It's great because as a local artist, I would think that's fabulous. But on the other hand, I also would like to show in galleries in Italy and Spain and all this, but they're only going to show Italian and Spanish people. It's like, it's a difficult part of the industry. Yeah. That I don't know how to remedy. (laughs) I don't know either. All right. Last thing. Uh, Any advice for the next generation? So conservationists, artists, whatever you seem to have some great advice for. Keep going. <laughs> you know, for me, it was somehow it's difficult to have these two parallel praxis orientation that I'm doing both. I mean, I've been doing painting sometimes for years, much more, and nearly no conservation. Other times it was the other way around. Sometimes it was like that I was doing both at the same time. And it's difficult too, because for the art market, you may be a conservator, <laughs> and for the conservators, you are, you know, oh, he's that artist over there. So 
you don't fit into any one of them, really. It's a little bit disqualifying you to have these two at the same time, these two kind of different positions, I think. But it was my choice, and I like both, and I have chosen it like that, and I must take the bad things that comes with it as well. Fair enough. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank you. As many of you know, I have a great disdain for the algorithm that rules our life, but one of the ways that I figured out is that you can be helpful to the podcast is offering a star rating or a comment through your podcast listening device. It is one of the few things that I can have figured out will assist. So if you could take a moment and please go make a star rating or some comment in your podcast listening device, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you are, that would be greatly appreciated. We are produced by 5014. I am your host, Matthew Doles, and the audio for this episode was edited by Jakob Czerny. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.